Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. I would encourage you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to preach uh, expositionally this morning through the scriptures, and so it's going to help you. If you're able to look at the Bible with me, uh, whether in hard copy or electronically, but please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 17 in just a moment. Uh, A lot like here, as I I saw when I drove up, we built about eight or nine years ago a barn across the street from our church building where our youth hold their services uh, every Wednesday night. And I love to go over there on Wednesdays because I try to be... 14 years old all over again. When the kids get together, they start picking teams to play football or basketball. I want to be in the middle of that. And you know how it goes. The ones that really want to play will call all the rest of them together and say, we're going to get a couple of captains and we're going to pick teams. And everybody waits around for the captains to pick the teams. But in a small town like where I grew up in Olton, Texas, and in Panhandle, Texas, and I'm sure in Dumas as well, We already know how the teams are going to shake out before they're picked. You know, the really good players will be picked first, the athletes. And then after that, the friends of the captains. And then the the non-friends who can still kind of walk without falling down. And then, you know. And there's always a kid that's there. And he only owns two t-shirts. And his shoes are too small. They're out of style. His parents can't afford to send him to six camps and a traveling team every summer. Sometimes he smells bad. And he misses social cues. He doesn't have a lot of friends. And every time they pick teams, they pick him last. The Apostle Paul writes the first letter to the Corinthians into a social setting where everyone in this city had a goal to be the captain. And if they couldn't be the captain, then they wanted to be picked first. To be someone through their own wisdom or eloquence, through sophist rhetoric. They wanted to attach themselves to a great leader or notable philosopher. They'd even done it in the church that Paul had started. They wanted to attach themselves to the best leader. If your Bible is open to 1 Corinthians, you can look back to verse 12. And see that they wanted to do that. They wanted to attach themselves to Paul or Apollos or Peter. 
But here where we will pick up, and for the rest of the letter really, Paul is going to say to them, I didn't come to Corinth to pick teams. I didn't come to skim the cream off the top. In fact, everything you think is valuable is the very thing that the gospel of Jesus Christ will flip upside down. So right after telling these people to stop attaching themselves to the leader that baptized them, Paul says this beginning in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we give you praise for your word, and we ask that you would use it this morning to encourage the saints and to convict the lost unto salvation. And I would encourage you, as your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, would you pray for yourself? The sermon event as the Bible is preached is a sacred time. Would you pray that God would speak to you? That he would give you open eyes and open ears, a heart to receive what he wants to say. Perhaps you're here this morning with 
people who are dear to you, those you love, friends and family, would you pray for those seated near you that they would hear from God this morning and that the Lord would use this time in their hearts. And even as you pray, I would confess I'm in a new place. I'm a little nervous. Would you pray for me as I preach that I would preach God's word faithfully to the good of your church? Father, your saints pray to you at this moment. We ask that you would hear their prayers, answer their prayers, ultimately to your glory, but also to our good. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to break our time together down into three sections based on the scripture. One, we'll see the foolishness of the cross. It's chapter 1 verse 17 through 25. Then we will see those who are called by the cross. That is going to be chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. And then finally, those who proclaim the cross, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So we'll begin the first half of my section from chapter 1, verses 17 to 25, the foolishness of the cross. Maybe you noticed as we were reading that two words showed up over and over again in that section, wisdom and power. And in verse 17, Paul hints that as human wisdom seeks to assert itself, the cross loses its power. And then in verse 18, to those who are perishing, There is no wisdom or power in the cross. In fact, it's foolish, vacuous, stupid. The Greek word is moria. It's where we get our English word moron. To those who are perishing, the cross is moronic. You'd have to be an idiot to be on board with that. And it's weak, it's lowly. The one who dies on the cross has been stripped of all their power. There's not a shred of strength left. Imagine the Holocaust, if you will. And let's say that some great artist painted a wonderful fresco that was just portraying mass graves outside of Auschwitz. And what if we took that painting and we just displayed it up here behind me as a huge moral, uh, just a huge mural? Could that be anyone's calling card? Of course not. Abhorrent, shocking in the Western mind. It would make zero sense for us to point to something so gut-wrenchingly wrong and say, Well, that's our thing. But the cross was that way in the first century Roman Empire. The ultimate in pain plus shock plus humiliation. Roman citizens were exempt. It was a punishment only for slaves, traitors, and the worst criminals. The cross brought about shuddering, horror, You couldn't talk about it in polite company. But nobody's embarrassed about the cross today. 
There it is behind me. Perhaps you have it on your jewelry at church today. So we need to think about that. Paul quotes the Old Testament book of Isaiah in verse 19. Where the prophet said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. God's plan for all time has been to frustrate any pathway to him that we think we can create on our own. If there were no sin in the world, you and I, we would have woken up into a world that was still operating in the perfect shalom of the Garden of Eden. And when we woke up, our minds and our hearts would have been centered immediately upon God's glory And our hearts would have sought to praise Him and to do good for our neighbors and our community. But that's not the world we live in. In the sin world, our world, all pathways are my pathways. All roads turn back on ourselves. Let's say I had a picture of your high school graduating class. And I put it up on the screen right now. Where would your eye immediately go? Yeah, you would look for yourself. Because all of our wisdom, all of our discernment cannot be other than self-seeking and self-promoting. And God says, i got to destroy that. Because really, where is your wisdom going to get you? That's the question in verse 20. Look there. Where are are all the wise people? Where's the thinkers? Where's the scribes? Where's the lawyers? Where's the expert exegetes of the Old Testament? Where's the theologians and the debaters and the philosophers? What about their ideas? Paul says, no amount of expertise, no amount of schooling, no amount of religious good intentions would ever lead you to the cross. So God has to destroy the wisdom of the wise. He has to show us that even the best wisdom of this world is foolish. See verse 21, in his infinite wisdom, God has already frustrated all human attempts to reconcile themselves through their own efforts. God's wisdom says, man's wisdom cannot find me. So what they need is not their own wisdom, not their own strength. What they need is what this whole section refers to as preaching, as proclaiming, a word that no one saw coming. And when that word, when that message is preached, it will sound like foolishness to most. But it is in my good pleasure to save those who believe. It pleased God. You sit there today under the sound of my voice and you've heard the word of the cross. 
and it toppled over your wisdom and your strength, and it knocked you to your knees, and then it picked you up again, and it blew your mind with wisdom and forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation. God says, that's my pleasure. Nothing pleases God more than to save those who believe. And then we get to verses 22 through 24, which is really the heart of this whole passage. Paul speaking to this mixture of Jews and Greeks that live in Corinth. And he says, the Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. So you got two cultures here, two societies that desire something different. But no one is excluded from missing the point. Everyone, everywhere, including Dumas, Texas, has suffered under the delusion of thinking they know the way to God. Who are the Jews? The Old Testament people of God? They didn't really care for all that Greek sophistry anyway. What they wanted was real life evidence, powerful proof, miracles, if you got them. They demanded signs from Jesus. Do you remember Matthew chapter 12, verse 38? Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And they thought that when the Messiah come, they were expecting him, that he would arrive to great manifestation of power and majesty, a crucified Messiah. That's an oxymoron. That's a contradiction in terms. We don't know exactly what the Messiah is going to do, but we know one thing he's not going to do, and that's die on a cross. And as soon as Jesus dies on a cross, they mark him off the list. Can't be the guy. Too weak. Our Messiah doesn't die. And he certainly doesn't die like that. What about the Greeks? Sophisticated thinkers desiring to be admired at the heights of recognition and public stature. Wisdom will get us to the top. But a cross... That's the bottom. We can't even talk about crucifixion. Paul, we want you to make the most sense, be the most clear. Stand on the heights of eloquence, Paul. One side says, we want power, and the other side says, we want wisdom. And Paul says, well, all I got is a word, a message. And he says, it's not even my message, it's somebody else's message. I'm just a herald, a spokesperson. And I just have one sermon. Jesus Christ, crucified. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived during that Holocaust I was mentioning earlier, is quoted as saying, if it is I who gets to say where God will be, I will always find a God right there who corresponds to me, who is agreeable to me, 
But if it is God who says where he will be, the place is always the cross of Christ. And the Jews say, no way, no way. Our Messiah is supposed to conquer. And you're saying he was conquered? That's scandalon, scandal, offensive. I'll stumble over that. And the Greeks say, no way, no way. That's foolish to even think about. It doesn't make sense. It can't make sense. No sane person would ever follow a wisdom that leads to crucifixion. And it's not just the Jews, and it's not just the Greeks. It's us. It's universal. The strictly human heart and mind doesn't even ask the question. It must reject So who can accept it? Paul says, verse 24, those who are called. Who's that? Well, it's the same group of people that he mentioned back in verse 18. He called them those being saved. He mentioned them again in verse 21, and he called them those who believe. So they say to him, show us something powerful, something impressive, Paul. And Paul says, I I don't have any power except that I do. I have a message that when you hear it, it will explode with power in your heart, and it will crush your selfishness, and it will reveal your sin, and it will bring you to your knees, and it will kill the old man, and then it will powerfully heal and restore and give birth to the new man. It's a power that will bring tears to your eyes long after any earthly miracle is done and gone. I have Christ, the power of God. Give us wisdom, Paul. Give us something that makes sense. And Paul says, I don't have any wisdom except that I do. I have a message. That when you get it, all the inconsistencies in your life, all the confusion, all the doubt will begin to melt away. And when you see that the foolishness of the cross was meant to vanquish your foolishness, that it was God bearing your folly for you, then you will realize that the cross of Christ is wisdom beyond human creativity. I've got Christ, the wisdom of God. For who? For those who are called, for those being saved, for those who believe, for those who will abandon the well-worn pathway of human might and strength, for those who will hear the message of the gospel and say, there it is. There's real power. There's real wisdom. In verse 25, that's what we all need to hear, isn't it? 
we think we know the way. We think we have the gumption and the education and the willpower to get there, wherever there is. But our best thoughts and our best efforts need to move to the back burner and come under the word of the cross, which is foolishness greater than our greatest wisdom, and it is the power of God, verse 18, power and wisdom upside down. And we still don't get it fully, do we? Our lives and even our churches reveal that we think we need more than the gospel. We still think that more education is always better. We still think more money is always better. We still think that more influence is always better. We think we need to spruce up the gospel message. And our preachers have to be the very best communicators that we can find. And our worship production services need the very best lights and sounds that technology can offer. And our books and our podcasts have to be brilliant. Since I'm a pastor, I'm targeted on social media by the algorithm, just like you are in whatever world you live in. And so I get the ads on social media that are directed towards pastors. And I hear all the time, hey, Josh, here's, here's three ways to make you a better sermon preacher. Here's five tips to maximize your team. Here's seven tricks to make your worship service pop. Because the temptation is the same as it ever was to try to take Christ crucified and somehow make that a little more attractive, make that a little more palatable. And even though we have the best intentions, we end up distorting the gospel. Paul says, preach the gospel. The word of the cross. Jesus Christ dying for sinners. And when that word lands on the ears of those who have been called, it'll flat blow them up in the best way possible. You understand. Those who are called. That leads us into the second paragraph there, beginning in verse 26. He writes there, you were called. Wherever you land on the whole theological perspective, given predestination and all that, whatever, wherever you land there, I can tell you this, you are a Christian by divine initiative. And so you need to remember your calling. And Paul says, you were not called because you are impressive. Most of you, he says, were not wise, not powerful, not from noble families. Here's the point. Not only is the message of the cross upside down, it works through upside down people and upside down churches. The word of the cross is foolish and weak, and God chooses to work in this world by calling people who are willing to embrace what the world calls foolish and weak. And it does say here, not many, verse 26, not many. It doesn't say not any. Certainly God calls all kinds of people, but history 
2,000 years of it has shown us that the major swath of Christian believers are unimpressive in the world. I mean, occasionally, there is a really gifted Christian preacher or a really famous person you'll hear about in the news that comes to faith or a, a really cool person or a really beautiful person. But for the most part, it's me and you, isn't it? We shop at Old Navy. Our hairline is running away from our eyebrows. We need to punch another hole in our belt. We sleep past our alarm. We're just not very impressive people. Some of us are from Olton, Texas, which if you are not aware, is not the academic or cosmetic capital of the world. There's a purpose to this. Three powerful statements in a row in verse 27. God chose the foolish. God chose the weak. God chose the low and despised. That kid, that one, who's only got two shirts, the smelly kid, the non-athlete, the one that sits at the back when they start picking teams and says, oh, here we go again. Paul is saying to us, you are all that kid. But good news, God picks that kid intentionally, on purpose. Why? To put to shame the wise and the strong and the exalted. That phrase there, even things that are not, that's like the nothings. God chose those who are in the eyes of this world, don't even exist and that means that God's activity in Christ is creative. It makes something out of nothings. So that means that God doesn't need us. We need Him. Hey, God made the universe. You made a sandwich. He's the one worth boasting about. He's the one who made us worth something in his eyes and then into the eyes of the world. So Paul is bringing Jeremiah 9 to bear on the New Testament church. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. And the point of all is so that glory will go where glory is supposed to go. God chooses the foolish to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That means, listen to me closely, no one is going to stand before God on that last day and clear his throat and say, <clears throat> well, of course I'm here. Uh, you know, through my own extensive wealth, education, and mental acumen, I came to discover the divine intellect all on my own. No, no, God 
comes to us as a weak baby, a lowly working class Jew, a teacher ostracized by the establishment, and a willing martyr via the most humiliating and debased death possible. That is something that no one would sort out on their own so that none of us would glory in anything except the amazing grace that God offers us in Jesus Christ. That's verse 30. You are in Christ because of God. And in Christ you have all the wisdom you need. Wisdom unto righteousness, that's justification, right standing before God. Wisdom unto sanctification, that's holiness, the ability to live in obedience. Wisdom unto redemption, that's freedom, set free from the bondage of this world. God did it so that we would boast in Him. Okay, so who are called? Who's being saved? Who are the ones who believe? Well, we can look around and we can see Him. It's the people that boast in the Lord. It's the people who can't wait to sing to the Lord, to serve the Lord, to give to the Lord. And finally, it's those who want to share the Lord. That's the final piece, the proclaimers of the cross in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul applies right here in this section. He takes everything that he just said in chapter 1, and he applies it to himself. And he says, look, just look at me. He says, I rolled up into your town, Corinth, you know, this town that's dead set on wisdom and power, fancy language, rhetoric, oratory wisdom. And he says, I got here. I didn't rely on that. I didn't come in trying to outsmart anybody, score more cool points than anybody. He says, when I came into your fancy city, I didn't get fancy. In fact, I decided beforehand that I would rely on one thing only, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Can I tell you right now that that is, that is freeing to me. When Matt Price called me, asked me if I would come preach in his church to his people, I, you know, I get overwhelmed with the desire to impress new people. People I'll probably never see again. How ridiculous is that? I have this desire in my heart to want to wow you. And then I read this. And Paul says, nothing. 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 Except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what I got to say. That's what I try to say to my church every Sunday. And it really is, it's the criteria for any Christian message. You can have some nice verses and some nice principles, but if there is no Jesus and there is no cross, that's not a Christian message. Jesus Christ, crucified. That's the big E on the vision chart. You are not allowed to miss it. The whole testimony of God, the very proclamation that we must make, 
is pretty simple. Jesus Christ crucified for sinners like you and like me. Does this mean that Paul thinks that any other doctrines of the Christian faith are unimportant? Other parts of what we believe, uh, that we should never talk about anything except the cross? Well, certainly not. You might say, well, what about the resurrection? Isn't that also important? Well, I would encourage you this afternoon, this same letter, read chapter 15. Uh, That's the greatest teaching on the resurrection in the entire Bible. Same letter. But what Paul is trying to say is this. For people who are looking for power, and so we say, well, I'm afraid that what I have to say is too weak. Or people are looking for wisdom, and we think, well, I'm afraid what I have to say is too foolish. Paul says, no, no, no. This is our message. And it is the power and wisdom of God. So verse 4 there, the preacher doesn't have to be amazing. The gospel sharer doesn't even have to be seminary educated. If you would drop how you look and how you sound and just preach the truth of the gospel... The Holy Spirit has everything he needs to work with. So Paul reminds the Corinthians, he says, don't forget how you were converted. I came preaching a simple message, so don't depart from that. So we don't need skills based on manipulation or conversions based on a preacher's communication skills. We need the power of God, a demonstration of God's Spirit. Where can we find those things? Is the power of God and the demonstration of God's Spirit available to you? Sure it is. Sure it is. When you, in your relative weakness, foolishness, and lowliness, could simply open your mouth and say, Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ is coming again. I'm going to be real with you folks. This is the opportunity where visiting pastors get to say things that their pastor can't say. It's 2023. We're evangelical Christians. Evangelical, that word, that no longer means what it used to mean. You know what it used to mean? It used to mean those denominations of the Christian faith that are built on sharing the gospel. That's that's what it meant. You know what it means today? It means people who vote Republican. That's what it means. Our faith was stolen by politics. But it's not politics' fault. Politics didn't sneak in in the middle of the night steal our identity? No. We slowly gave it away when evangelicals stopped evangelizing. When's the last time that you, Christian, in this room right now, been nodding at me for 40 minutes Agreeing with everything I said about the centrality and ultimacy of the cross. When's the last time you shared that with someone else? And I don't mean invited them to church. I don't mean 
being friends with them. I mean, intentionally seeking opportunities to say with your mouth, Jesus Christ died for you. And he's coming again. Do you know him? Last time. Well, Josh, hold on, man. You know, I, I can't think of the right words. Paul agrees. I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech. Well, well Josh, I'm just not important enough. Paul agrees. I was with you in weakness. Well, I'm scared. Paul agrees. I was with you in fear and much trembling. Well, I get tongue-tied, Josh. Paul agrees. My speech was not in plausible words of wisdom. Well, Josh, what do I have? You have the same thing that Paul had. You have the message of a crucified Savior. A message, a word, a proclamation that is in and of itself without any help from you the wisdom and power of God. Listen to me. The gospel message does not just have power. It is power. The gospel message does not just have wisdom. It is wisdom. And this message of the cross of Jesus Christ is the dividing line of history. If you look all the way back to verse 18, that's what it says. That there are those perishing and those being saved. Brothers and sisters, that is the only polarity that matters. Every human being will be divided by the cross. Does that sound foolish to you? 10,000 years from now, in eternity, it will not matter who you voted for in 2024. It will not matter if you thought wearing masks was a good idea or not. It will not matter if you were rich or poor educated or ignorant, slave or free, fat or skinny, right-handed or left-handed. It will only matter if you were saved or perishing. And the cross is the fulcrum on which all of eternity and all of humanity will hinge. And depending upon which side you land on, the cross will look a certain way to you. So I want to call you today to place your faith in the work of Christ on the cross if you have never done that. And if you have, I want to remind you to get over yourself and boast in the Lord and share the simple gospel. It's foolish, and it's weak, upside down, the wisdom and power of God. Let's pray together. 
Father, would you encourage your saints through the preaching of your word? Would you remind us of what makes us who we are? We are the community of Jesus Christ crucified. Father, convict me, even as a preacher, to remember this. And convict these saints here at First Baptist Dumas. I pray for them, Father. I pray for them. That they would be the people who are centered on this message. That ultimately nothing more matters to them than that their sins are forgiven, that they are made right with you through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And I pray by your Spirit, give them the anointing and the encouragement and the power to share this gospel with their friends. Father, I am certain that there are Many struggling, lost, confused, insecure people in Dumas, Texas that need your gospel. Empower First Baptist Dumas to get that gospel to them and to help them to see it. Father, I do pray for these saints that you would Encourage them and empower them in the week to come, in the days to come. I pray for their pastor as he returns home. That you would allow him to travel safely. And that his ministry would bear much fruit in this place. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. FBCDUMAS at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806 935 5604. We'll see you next time.